The paragraph we're looking at today begins in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, through the end of the chapter, which is verse 42. Jesus has been traveling. He set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. And as he's traveled, he's encountered uh, lawyers who wanted to trip him up. And he's told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now he speaks of some precious believers. Verse 38. Now... As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed her into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. I speculated when I posted the service on Facebook, uh, inviting people to church. I said, what would you do if Jesus was coming to your house? I have no idea what the comments are. I haven't looked. Uh, And maybe people in the world don't think that's possible. Jesus will come again. But hypothetically, uh, it's one thing. But here we see it really happening in history. Jesus coming to this little village of Bethany where he had some acquaintances. Mary and Martha were known to him. They were believers. The brother Lazarus later on would be raised from the dead. That's in John chapter 11. So Jesus knows this family and he comes knocking. What do you do when someone stops by, perhaps unannounced? I certainly know what that was like in the family where I grew up. Uh, or more recently with my wife and our children, if someone's at the door, do a quick pickup, or we just heard someone's on their way. The quick pickup, that's a buzzword. You may see my kids start sweating at the sound of it. Racing to every room, taking your stuff and hiding it, or I mean putting it away, uh, uh, and, and pitching in uh, each to a different room. And, and the littlest one sometimes is running around in excitement. Um, in my household, there wasn't always a lot to pick up, but there was one odd thing that my mom's already in glory. I can tell you we had a beautiful gold sofa from, I don't know, the 50s or 60s, and it had two different size, sides to the cushion. Every day we had the regular cushion side, but when company was coming, it was my job to flip the sofa cushions. So the embroidered side was on top. I loved that job, the notched one going over here and... Because company was coming and we wanted to prepare. We wanted our home to to be suitable for our guest. Yet what should shape the visit when the guest arrives in your home? Should it be more serving? Almost to the point of showing off? Or should it be time with your guest and, let's say, savoring the visit? Those two choices are at odds in the passage with Mary and Martha. We'll talk about them and explain the situation. But it gives the occasion for Jesus to teach us. 
Only the Gospel of Luke has this paragraph, this episode recorded for us. And I hope your takeaway will be what Jesus says. Whether you're more like Martha or more like Mary isn't the point. The point is to hear Jesus and to understand there is a priority of activities. And as Jesus says, per the King James, there is one thing needful, one thing necessary. So that's what we're going to look at today. And the way I've structured the the sermon outline is the three things that Jesus says in response to Mary give us our structure. So when Jesus first responds to Mary, he speaks to her about her present busyness. So let's start with the domestic setting and the danger of excessive cares. Jesus had been traveling and Back in the day, there were no Holiday Inns or Motel 6. You, you stayed with someone in their home. And hospitality was practiced among most of the ancient Middle Eastern cultures. It was an important thing. And there was a burden and a responsibility for hospitality. But even more so among Christians, as we'll see. Jesus comes near Bethany, which was just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And he feels at home there. And he comes and he's received by Martha with her sister Mary and their brother Lazarus. Um, I think Martha, I agree with the scholars, I think Martha was a widow, and I think it was her home. She's obviously fits the type of being the oldest, and Mary appears to be unmarried, and Lazarus, perhaps a younger brother that still lived in the house. And there in the house, as Jesus arrives with some or many of his disciples, we don't know. A tension arises between the two sisters in that domestic setting because... They have two different temperaments. Anybody here have a sibling? Do you have the exact same temperaments? No. You can see there's variety. And here we have two different women. Martha is is characterized primarily from this passage as energetic. She's organized. She's the head of the household. She's calling the shots here, it seems. And she's also a lover of Jesus. Martha does what she does because she loves Jesus. And wants him to be blessed and welcomed. Um, The verb here is is a very particular word for a hostess. When it says she welcomes him. um, uh, What verse is it? Uh, um, And a woman named Martha welcomed him. Verse 38. Very particular word for receiving and treating as a guest. uh, To be the honored or distinguished guest. It wasn't just she opened the door. She was intent on making him feel welcome. That's Martha. The sister Mary, perhaps younger, she is a deeply devoted disciple. She's attentive, and she appears to be contemplative. One of my favorite words. Contemplative. She sits at the feet of Jesus. She's one of those Christians who is often found reading she, she wants to take in the things of God. But she's not just passive reading homebound. If you know what happens in the Gospel of John, it was Mary who went to the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. And her brother Lazarus was ill. So it's this Mary that's identified in the Gospel of John as serving Jesus in that very unusual way. That's Mary, deeply devoted at a different temperament than Martha. God makes them different. 
Praise God that each church has its own type of person and all those gifts are at work in the body of Christ. But uh, we'll see that there is conflict ahead. But I also want to point out what I think Luke, the gospel author, is doing by telling us this story here and now. Jesus has not yet arrived in Jerusalem, but he tells the Bethany story here in his gospel because of what he's been doing recently in the chapter. If you glance back up to verse 21, you'll see that Jesus was thankful in the Holy Spirit to God the Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That verse 21 sets up the remainder of the chapter. Do you recall we had met with the smarty pants lawyer who wanted to test Jesus, who is my neighbor? I think he's reflected in verse 21 as those who haven't yet caught on to what God's doing. He was the wise and understanding, but not really. And who else was listed in verse 21? Uh, The little children. I think that will help us connect and see Mary and Martha. Jesus longed to reveal the Father to Mary and Martha, as verse 22 says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's why Jesus spoke and taught and did miraculous signs as pointers to the truthfulness of his message. That's what Jesus is doing that evening in Bethany. He wants to bring more truth to bear in that home to these dear Christian women and to Lazarus, who's not mentioned in today's passage, but that was his home as well. Uh, They're in this domestic setting, and there is a duty of hospitality. We need to mention that as we pass along. Martha is properly serving the Lord by organizing hospitality. It's not enough just to be nice. You you should serve the needs of a visitor. Food, drink, and perhaps a place to sleep. Do you know what the word hospitality is in Greek? You may be able to parse it out because of the synonyms with English. Philozenia. Philo or philos is one of the words for love. Xenia uh, for stranger. You've heard of xenophobia. Christians ought not to have xenophobia. If you have it, see your doctor immediately. Um, We need to practice hospitality. It was common in the ancient Near East, but the Bible says to Christians, it's our particular duty. Are you aware of this? Let me just give you a few verses in rapid succession. You should know this. Romans 12, 13, Paul writes in that practical chapter about Christian love. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and... Seek to show philozenia, love to strangers, hospitality. Or Paul writes to Timothy and he describes the godly widow in chapter 5 of the first epistle. He describes her as having a reputation for good works if she has brought up children and has shown hospitality and has washed the feet of the saints and has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. Hospitality is part of the identity of a godly person. 
Hebrews 13.2, to everyone, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Peter as well, 1 Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That without grumbling part is important. It's not enough in Christianity just to, okay, do my duty, but from a cheerful heart with grace and kindness. Christians, let us remember our duty even as Martha's doing her duty. And it's not the fact that she was doing some hospitality that got her uh, a mild correction from Jesus, but the length and excess she went in that. The first thing Jesus says, that which gives us our structure for this first point, when she comes up to the Lord, she's complaining. Let's read her complaint. Mary is sitting at the Lord's feet in verse uh, 40, for, 39. In verse 40, Martha was distracted with much serving, says our inspired narrator. And she went up to him, to Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. We recognize the tone, I think. We recognize that it's not just in children, but in most families. We sometimes get to one another and say, hey, it's your turn to help. Come on, there's a lot to be done. But we're told by the narrator and then by Jesus that Martha was at the point of distraction. Something unhealthy had seized upon her because, as Jesus says, of her many cares. Some commentators suggest that she decided to cook more than one entree. Um, And, you know, scholars can wander off into the weeds with questions like that. It really doesn't matter whether she's serving multiple entrees or she's trying to pull off a baked Alaska. We really don't know. Or if while she was cooking in the kitchen, it was left to her to prepare a bedchamber or perhaps multiple sleeping areas for multiple disciples while Mary just sat listening with the other disciples. We don't know all that Martha was trying to undertake. We know the type. She's using her gifts and doing her duty, but she's gone too far and it has begun to consume her and distract her spirit and her mind. Even as she's working in the kitchen or in the bed chambers or in between and she hears the Lord's voice, she can't take that in. She can't add that. Her heart is caught up in this agenda of her own. That's why Jesus speaks to her in verse 41. Martha, Martha, You are anxious and troubled about many things. The great physician comes up with the diagnosis right away. He doesn't say, Martha, what's troubling you? He has noticed. And he can tell. And he can read her face. The distraction is there. And the Lord confirms what the narrator told us. You are anxious and troubled about many things. It's not that she was tempted to those things they'd already seized upon her and he could see it in her face and hear it in her words, even her sharp words to Jesus. Don't you care? I would have you note that I think the Lord uses her name twice here, Martha, Martha, in an act of compassion. I know a few scholars will say it's a rebuke. Martha, Martha, 
like a parrot might repeat a child's name. No, I think it's an act of compassion. It's almost as if you come alongside the troubled person and, and you say, hey, hey, and you try to get them to slow down and hear you for a second. Jesus is always filled with compassion, especially for his people. He's not rebuking a Pharisee here. He's rebuking a dear believer. So he speaks compassionately. And he tells her in no uncertain terms, it's not Mary that's your problem. You're the problem, Martha. You are the source of your anxieties and troubles. It's the too many things you have put and taken upon yourself. They're the cause of your distraction. And they brought you this anxiety and this trouble, this emotional knot that has you gripped. Douglas Milne says, Martha's response was not measured by the wishes or needs of her guest, capital G, so much as by her own desire to host something grand. And and I don't think he's slamming Martha by throwing in the word grand. But whatever Martha had in mind was much more than Jesus demanded. Jesus often skipped meals for the sake of ministry, didn't he? He said, it's uh, my food and drink to do my Father's will. So he was not a fussy guest. If Martha was putting on a big spread or taking on all these things, it was her own design. It was her own doing. And you see, it's the excessive, dangerous attention to lawful duties, quote-unquote, that took Martha away from any spiritual blessing. From the words of Jesus. Back in the 1600s, I mean uh, 1700s, uh, known to Jonathan Edwards, there was a preacher in Virginia, in Hanover, Virginia, named Samuel Davies. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Uh, he's often been referred to as the greatest American preacher of the colonial age. Samuel Davies. There are three volumes of his sermons that are published. He has a sermon on this text. It's a wonderful sermon. Uh, it's, it's very blunt at times. It's been helpful. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. He points out here that although Mary's doing, excuse me, Martha's doing what's lawful and, and part of her duty, when she gets to this excess, Davies points out that it's not readily noticed by others her overwork and distraction that had become dangerous. Overwork and distracted service is not a sign of greater faithfulness. And here's where I'm going out on the thin ice. I'm thinking as a pastor, seeing what the scriptures are teaching, to say something like, the busiest person in our church isn't necessarily more faithful or more pleasing to the Lord than others who are less busy. I hope you understand that in the context it's given. We need our core people who do so much. Don't don't leave. But think in these terms. You've you've heard that in most churches, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That's part of human organization. I don't have complaints about our church. We could all do a little more and some can do a little less. But what Jesus is saying here, Martha, you've brought this on yourself by your self-imposed agenda. And it's keeping you from spiritual profit. That's where he's going to go. 
And I quoted Samuel Davies because we tend to overlook zeal and energy in otherwise good things. Somebody who's at every event of the church, somebody who's always there early, always there late, somebody who's always doing this and always doing that. It's not always healthy. It may distract from the good your soul needs. We can make parallel applications to our culture if we had time. Our culture really esteems the person who overworks, who puts in the the extra, extra dozen hours every week. That's our culture's happy place. But Jesus gives us a caution that there needs to be a priority among our duties. He doesn't say don't work hard, but he says one thing is necessary. That's where he goes. So the second thing Jesus says after exposing these dangerous, distracting labors of Martha, Jesus says this, you are anxious and troubled about many things, verse 42, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. The second thing Jesus says is one thing is necessary. One versus the many. You should see that. It jumps off the page. Jesus often uses rhetoric to make his point. Now, is he talking about one specific thing? Is he going to say Bible reading? Or is he going to say praying? Or is he going to say Sunday church at 930? No. In fact, when he says one thing necessary, it's one category of thing. And I'll name it in a moment. But rhetorically, Jesus is drawing the contrast between the the shotgun approach of doing all these things to serve the Lord, doing everything and anything. That's not the healthiest choice. The many. You need to focus. There's one thing. Pastor Doug Milne said, true service for Christ does not consist in what we, in our busyness, can give Jesus but in recognizing what he delights to give us, namely his word. We can be so busy. Perhaps you've met someone who's so busy telling you about their day, they don't have opportunity to hear your consoling words. Oh, that's true. Oh, I'm really sorry. You can't even offer the support that they need. Jesus tries to slow down Mary and tell her, instead of the many, there's one thing. One thing versus the many. That's sometimes foreign to our American multitasking mindset. Where we can uh, be scrolling on our phone at the dinner table. Yeah, yeah, that's really a sad story. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it, it, we're, we're driven and shaped by our culture. No, no long attention spans. And, and if you think it's, I, I, I confess, since... Uh, the invention of the smartphone and social media, my attention span has been damaged. I put limits. I'm seldom on Facebook anymore and some of these other things. But the cultural pressures change us. And what Jesus is calling for here is needed in America, needed by us today. One versus many. What is the one thing? The one thing is... I'm not asking for you to shout it out, but do you know? What is it Jesus is pointing at? When he points at Mary, he says, Mary's chosen it. What has Mary chosen? I want to use two phrases to describe the one thing. 
Because one's the broader category and one's the ongoing category. I think Jesus is talking about the salvation of our soul. The salvation of our soul. To become right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. To come to Christ. To experience the new birth. To be saved. To be brought into the family of God and into the kingdom of God. So salvation is the big thing. And the ongoing side of that, because Mary and Martha are both believers. They both have trusted Christ. And and when they raise Lazarus from the dead, when Jesus raises Lazarus, they give a great answer. They know the true answer. Lord, you are the resurrection. We know that those who believe in you will live in the last day. They are believers. So the one thing, especially for Mary and Martha, was spiritual soul care. Care of your soul. Soul care. We need to talk about that a little bit more than skin care or taking care of your feelings. It's your soul care. That's at the heart of the one thing needed. Pastor Doug Milne says, Whatever work we do for the Lord, the primary need is for time spent with Him. And that means time in His Word. And that's regardless of our temperament. Some people are inclined to be readers, to be contemplative. Some are not. And friends, that's harder for you to, to take that time and sit still. But that's the call. That's the duty. The one thing needed to care for your soul. Again, back in the early 1700s in Hanover, Virginia, Samuel Davies talking about uh, this one thing is necessary. He says, there are what we call the real necessities of life, such as food and clothes. There are also necessary callings and necessary labors. All these are necessary, he says, in a lower sense, necessary in their proper place, but in comparison with the great work of our salvation, They are all unnecessary. That's the point of Jesus. We we do need our food and clothing. And if we fail to provide for our own, we're worse than an unbeliever. All those things are true. But most important is the status of your soul before your maker. That's most important. One thing is needful. One thing is necessary versus the many. It's to be right with God through faith in Christ and care for your soul as a child of God. And it's necessary because because Jesus said so. There we go. That's the best first answer, right? If it's in the Bible and it's command, if Jesus says it, you don't need to be a theologian. You say, well, Jesus says it's necessary. One thing's necessary. Jesus said it. But why would it be necessary? Well, the whole Bible tells us. It's necessary because we are lost without coming to Christ, trusting Christ, being in union with Christ, and keeping in step with His Spirit. If we're still in rebellion and sin and not joined with Christ, we're lost. In Matthew 16, that other beautiful gospel, Matthew 16, Jesus taught about take up your cross and follow me. 
Shortly after that, in Matthew 16, 26, he said this, which you know, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? How valuable is a soul? Gain the whole world. Jesus says it's necessary because without it, you really have nothing. If your soul is left in its lost estate, if it is not brought to Jesus and redeemed by Jesus, doesn't matter if you're a billionaire or you have fame and fortune. What would it profit to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? I didn't know if I would take time to describe. I looked up the names of individuals, and you can Google this. There was one in the Southwest that particularly gripped me many years ago. He was hiking. He was one of those adventurous hikers on his own in a boulder-filled canyon somewhere in the Southwest, and he fell into a gap. And as he fell, a boulder came and crushed his arm and pinned him in this valley. You can look up his name. I'm sorry, I don't remember it. And he thought he'd be found, but after a day or two realized he wouldn't be found. He was going to bleed to death and perish there unless the necessity of freeing himself became a necessity. And with his pocket knife, he severed his own arm, bandaged it up, and on his way out was rescued. And he's not the only one. You can pick up a dozen stories like that. The farmer in his field and the farm equipment pins him. Oh, the stories. I, I can't see myself making that choice. But I'm not in that place. I'm not convinced of the necessity of it. So that's why I, I won't contemplate it. But when you're brought to face a necessity, you either do this or it's all lost. That's what Jesus is saying about care for your soul. This isn't just optional. This isn't just for the super duper Christians who are going to kick it up a notch. This is for every human being who has a soul given to you by God. It is necessary that you care for that soul, that you come to Christ for cleansing, for salvation, and that you care for that soul. In recent weeks, I've been banging away at Matthew 6.33. Is that anybody's memory verse yet? Matthew 6.33, anyone's memory verse yet? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's the priority of spiritual care. It's the one thing needed. And Jesus takes this opportunity because he loves Martha as much as he loves Mary. He's trying to make spiritual truth known to her for her good. Mary, you're great at hospitality. I, I, that's why I keep coming back. I love your home. You give me comforts. You're a blessing, Mary. But you've gone too far. And you're missing out on my instruction and, and the comfort I can give you. To make this relationship work, Mary, you've got to make time for me. The third thing Jesus says in response here is the better choice 
of Mary, which he praises. Again, we're looking at the three things Jesus says. Let's repeat. Verse 41, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Notice how Jesus doubles down. There's not just the corrective for Martha, but Jesus points Martha to the better choice and makes a statement, an affirmation about that better choice in this third statement to Martha. Jesus is affirming the priority of spiritual care. He's affirming that. Which choice is good? Well, we all would like to have dinner, like to have a place to sleep, but the good of my soul. What good is it if Jesus visits your home and you don't listen to him or spend time with him? Jesus affirms the goodness of spiritual focus and soul care. And it's a gospel issue. A lot of people raise a lot of things to the level of a gospel issue. And I'm pretty tired of that on social media. Um, uh, You won't believe what goes on. Maybe you do know, but I think this ventures on being a gospel issue. This whole story, as one commentator put me onto it, they say this short story reveals the ever-present temptation even among believers of substituting religion for the gospel. We could define religion, they say, as human activity pursued in an attempt to please God. The gospel, however, they rightly point out, is the message of God's gracious love toward us and the invitation to orient our lives toward him rather than focusing on doing even the doing of good things such as serving The one thing that is necessary and the good portion is to sit and listen to Jesus. It can be a gospel issue. Why was the Reformation needed? Because the Church of the Middle Ages had wandered and focused on being a religion rather than the truth of God's word and the gospel of grace. We can easily be sucked away from the gospel by such a mentality as Martha's. It's not just distraction. I've used the word danger from time to time. She's in a dangerous place to allow anything to keep you from fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior. It puts you in a dangerous, self-centered place. Jesus affirms the spiritual choice of Mary. And by so doing, she really shows us the distinctive, really the ultimate distinctive between Christians and non-Christians. If I meet someone and say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I became a Christian a long time ago. What church do you go to? I don't do church anymore. Oh really? People don't worship, don't do anything? You know, I think if you profess to be a Christian, if you are a Christian, you can't help but take care of your soul and commune with your Savior and God to gather where he is to be worshipped. Mary needed to see, Martha needed to see that. And Mary is affirmed in her choice. 
Jesus is praising the better choice. And in making this clear, Jesus tells us that we need to appreciate the spirituality of others. He doesn't just say, uh, sit and listen to me, but he points to Mary. You're disparaging Mary. Don't do that. Her choice is good. Back down, Martha. We need to appreciate the spirituality of others. Jesus is explicit here. Mary's choice is good. Martha's busyness, although esteemed by many evangelicals, we would love to have a few more Marthas in our church, right? But we've got to be careful because something good can be taken too far and she can miss out and her soul be neglected. We need to appreciate the spirituality of others. There's something here that helps us remember not to be judging others as much as we do. We set up our own litmus test. Oh, well, if they're not here, they're not there, they're not doing this, they're not doing that. Well, I'm going to complain about you to the Lord. We have to be careful of such things. The priority Jesus places before us is time with him and the care of our soul. And that takes many different fashions, many different ways. One, one other thing Jesus says here on this third comment, Mary has chosen the good portion, and then he says, which will not be taken away from her? Martha, I'm not going to tell her to get up now. And really what she's investing in, she's investing in for eternity. This will not be taken away from her. I would say to you, extra time in prayer will benefit you for eternity. I know many a Wednesday, I'm as weary as you, and it, the clock says, oh, time to leave for the prayer meeting, or log on, or whatever it is we do. And sometimes the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But you come, and you start praying, and this is the testimony. I've been in pastoral ministry now 30 years. Every one of those weary nights was turned to blessing. Every single one. I, I think, I, I, I can't think of a contrary result. God blesses our investment in soul care. And he says here, what Mary has will not be taken away. Perhaps you can... Put it in light of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Not in Bimini. Not in Bitcoin. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see the connections. Soul care is so important, is it not? I've tried to leave a minute for closing, and that's about all I've left, but I need three or four. Because I want to give you a few practical things. I want to answer in closing this question, how do we pursue the one thing? How do we pursue the one thing? I want you to, to have actionable steps. And I've got three words. They're verbs uh, that begin with C. First, choose. Choose, as in decide, as in be intentional and mean it. If something is necessary, 
and you believe that, you need to act on it. If you don't act on it, you don't believe Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you're exaggerating. It's not really necessary. I'll have time for that later. Jesus didn't say that. He said to Martha, one thing is necessary. Daily necessary. You might remember the wonderful declaration of Joshua. Back in Joshua chapter 24 in the Old Testament. He's, he's old and he's trying to give a parting word to the people of God. He said, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will prioritize the Lord. Is this the one thing needful in your life? in your plans for Monday, in your plans for the holidays, in your plans for your retirement, in your heart and mind. Who is your first love? What is your topmost priority? These are the things Jesus is promoting. We need to choose, decide, and be intentional. And if it is your top priority, a second step you ought to take is clean house. I think that's a verb. Clean is, I know. But the concept, clean house. And we're not just talking about the quick pickup. I'm not going there again. But as Jesus said to Mary, the many things, you're tripping over these many things, Mary. Calm down. Focus. Clean house. Deal with the many distractions, the temptations, and the impulse. This is why pastors often tell people, if you're going to have your devotions in the morning, in the evening, whenever you have them, find a place with fewer distractions. Sometimes it's hard to do that at your desk, or near your laptop, or near the children, or you get the picture. Where did Jesus go to pray when he really needed to pray? He left the little group, and he went out into the hills. You need to clean house, and that's not really optional. If something's necessary. Let me remind you of the parable of the soils. We had it back in Luke chapter 8. You probably remember it. Jesus talked about evangelism, sowing the word, like sowing seed into a field, and it falls on different types of soil. In Luke eight fourteen, he talks about what fell among the thorns. Listen to what he says. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and concerns and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. The many things can choke out the main thing. Be reminded of the necessity and make room. Clean house. We're talking spiritually. The third step is the most important. You need to commune. You need to have communion with your Lord. Isn't that the way you care for your soul? Spend time with Jesus. Not just doing things for Jesus, but spend time with him. That parable of the soils, right after the thorny choke out, the next verse, verse 15 in Luke 8 says, And as for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. And bear fruit with patience. 
Hold it fast. There's soul care. You take in God's word and you hold it. You learn from it. You believe it. It begins to shape your thinking and your outlook. You spend time with Jesus through his word. Is there any time in your daily schedule for Jesus? Do you have a, I don't want to say date night with Jesus. That just won't do it for a a lot of us. Is there quality time with Jesus in your schedule? Seriously. And quality time, I know, I don't want to say quantity because people can add that to their many things. Oh, I've got to have X amount of minutes or hours. Dangerous. We're looking for the quality. It has to be time with Jesus. It can be but a few moments if it's with Jesus. That's what matters. Dr. Kelly Kapik, he's a professor of theology at Covenant College in Georgia, gives us a few more helps about communing. Let me give these to you as well. He says, we need to take note of a classical theological distinction between union with Christ and communion with Christ. In order to delight in the promise of communion, we must first rest in our established union with Christ. If you've been born again, you have union with Christ. You just need to take advantage of it. He says, Christians are those who, because they are united to Christ, are able to enjoy communion with God. Whereas our union with Christ neither grows nor diminishes, our experience of communion can and does. So while our prayers or lack of prayers do not make us more or less united with Christ, they do make a real difference to our enjoyment of and fellowship with God. Union establishes the relationship. Communion is the mutual communication and experience that happens within the relationship. And he gives this potent illustration that I saved it for the end. A negligent husband may still be united to his wife in marriage, but that does not mean their relationship is flourishing. Their legal union does not mean that life-giving communion is taking place. The benefits meant to be experienced out of that union are not fully enjoyed when such disregard is occurring. Husbands who neglect communion with, communication with, attentiveness to, and the care of their wives do not only hurt their spouses, they hurt themselves as well. Believers who are careless, says Dr. Kapek, careless in their communion with God, are like spouses who ignore the one they claim to love. God invites us not only to be secure in our salvation, but to flourish in our relationship with him. We call this communion with God. Soul care. The one thing needed. May the Lord help us and bless us to do these very things to his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Your word which accomplishes such wonderful changes in us, Lord. Our eyes are open to some very important things today. And we see some difficult realities about ourselves. And things that are needed, indeed, the thing that is most necessary. Father, bring this conviction to reality. May we make real changes. May you lead us and help us for our soul's good. 
By your grace, may we seek first the kingdom of God and spend time with our Savior and Lord now and into eternity. Help us and bless us and make us a blessing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.